Hey, Lurid listeners, would you like a free audiobook? Follow us on Twitter at the KMQ, then tag us in a tweet. Tell us which KMQ episode is your favorite, and we'll send you the audiobook of your choice from our Audible library. But you better hurry up. Some titles are going fast. Except for you UK folk. We've got a ton of UK codes yeah, still do. to give you. So come on, baby. Come on over. Join us over the pond for some sexy story time. Eroticism is important. It influences and energizes our entire human experience. Eroticism isn't sex. It's sexuality transformed by our imaginations. We encourage lurid listeners to cultivate eroticism, to play with it, smack it, rub it down. We want you to enjoy yourselves, your partners, and your sexuality. You are entitled to your sexual self. This show is for adults only and contains erotic stories that sometimes, sometimes feature provocative characters and intense themes and situations like today. (laughs) Spanning many literary genres, including action adventure, science fiction, romance, horror, fantasy, paranormal. Please listen responsibly. Hey, hey, lurid listeners, welcome back to the Kiss Me Quicks Erotica Podcast. This is your host, Rose Carraway, and joining me in the studio, shirtless as always, is Big Daddy Dave Carraway. He's currently playing with his nipples. Nipples. <laughs> Say hey, Big Daddy. I said it oh, with my nipples. nipples. Okay. Uh, yeah, you kind of, what is it? Nailed the head of the nail. What is that? How does that say no? <laughs> it ain't that. <laughs> that much is true. I just got back from a four mile hike. My blood has left my brain. <laughs> what is it? Nailed the head of the. What? How does that Hit the nail on the head. Is that what you're trying to yes. say? <laughs> God damn. That might be anyway, one of the oldest sayings I in know. human history. Next to the why the long face uh, joke, right? It's as old as the God. nail itself. <laughs> Help me. <laughs> Today's story is a, yeah, I think so, a provocative tale. It is a provocative It may not suit everybody's taste, but part of the fun we have with this show is playing with taboos. And today's story, titled Confession, does exactly that. Mm-hmm. We've got a priest, we've got a member of the congregation, and that's all we're going to tell you. There's a little confession happening there's a confession we're we're just gonna play with that scenario and you know if you're if you're interested in more stay tuned if you're not because religion isn't how you want to take your erotica we totally get it and support you and say we'll see you on the next episode love it's not even religious it's not (laughs) it's two consenting adults but it's just the idea yeah so (laughs) we get it we got you baby don't worry um but before we get to our story. Do we have any business to take care of? Well, for the men is going swimmingly so far. We're you know, already erotica for men. Exactly, erotica <laughs> for men. Yeah, um, I've actually gotten some emails from alert listeners who are writing some nice. stories. Part of me, I, like most of me, I am getting so excited about this because of that. I could publish a lurid listener, and then. Like that story is so hot that we publish it and then it's we put it on the show. Oh my god, it's I feel like that our our show has come full circle. That we've brought people 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 pupas. Did you bring pupas? We the the listeners have been pupating. Now they're ready to emerge. (laughs) 
as full-on sexual beings and eroticists. creating erotic stories themselves. Uh, I, I'm just tickled by that, and I'm so, I'm so excited. So if there are any more lured listeners out there, just too scared to do it. Stop. Don't be afraid. Fear kills more dreams than anything else. Fear Don't does. let it. Write it down. There is a slush pile group on Facebook. If you email me, I will send you that link. There are beta readers ready to read your story and give you some pointers on where you can maybe do better or rearrange some things. So that's groovy. Like that's the biggest thing that I think any writer could could gain is just different opinions from those readers. So that's cool. Yeah, and I just you know we've talked about this you know, but one of the things that I like about Lord listeners trying to write for our anthologies is that okay so maybe you write a story and it doesn't get accepted but what we're hoping is that you writing this you're bringing this into your life and we hope that even if you're not quote accepted you're still getting something out of it that that hopefully will put a positive light in your life it doesn't get better than that really i don't think that's all part of this whole sexual self-acceptance so Mm -hmm. it starts with you um you know whether or not a story gets accepted it's got nothing to do with it Mm -hmm. yeah it's a great ego stroke but it's better than that it's bigger than that Mm -hmm. and and again we just encourage you guys if fear is holding you back do not let it Mm -hmm. write it yeah just do it just do it yep start there yeah All right, before our story begins, let me tell you about our latest audiobook. The Sexy Librarian's Dirty 30, Volume 3. Come inside. Experience the breath, inspiration, and excitement of superb erotic storytelling. Browse my card catalog. Find the perfect story to suit your mood, with subjects tantalizingly indexed to whet your appetite. Lose yourself in these 30 risque adventures, loaded with fabulous characters in provocative situations. Aphoristic and lively, these tales are perfect for a midday quickie or an evening kiss before bed. Do you have 20 minutes for a brazenly sexy jewelry heist? Or maybe take that once-in-a-lifetime cruise vacation and discover that mermaids really do exist. You can savor the heat rising in your cheeks as you confess your deepest desires to the town priest. Then finish off your evening with a run in Central Park, only to stumble upon a house made of gingerbread? The Sexy Librarian's Dirty 30, Volume 3, edited by Rose Carraway. Now available at Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. Confession Author Emma Chatton. Narrated by Jade A. Waters. Category, Religion. Subjects, 1. Forbidden. 2. Intense shame. 3. Demand penance. Confession by Emma Chatton. 
Raised in the church, you've always had some kind of religion in the background, from catechism to Sunday mass to the high holidays. The ritual, the music, the chants, they've always been there in some form. As an adult, it's a more complicated relationship now between you and the church. The normal everyday trappings of life, work, and more, it just all gets in the way. Like most other professors of the faith, you're not exactly very good at being Catholic. But you try, despite whatever mortal failings you might have. One of those mortal failings, of course, is your sexuality. In many ways, being a woman creates no shortage of attention. The look that lingers a little too long in your direction. The momentary dart of eyes from your breasts to your face. The distracted silence in a conversation when you walk by. Sometimes it's an annoyance. Other times, attraction works its charms and you give in to temptation. The dance can be anything, from a nice dinner with expensive red wine, leading to somebody's bed and a quick dirty fuck in a bathroom stall because you just need to be filled. Men are predictable, and it's not difficult to read their intentions from the moment they introduce themselves. Men of the cloth, on the other hand, are also predictable, just in a different way. They tend to be asexual, a bit out of reach in terms of age and social position, like a quiet, funny uncle who remains the eternal bachelor, ready to crack an awful joke on cue. No one thinks of a priest as a matter of physical compulsion, not without some feeling of guilt. And you certainly never had a reason to think of any in that fashion. Not from the time of your youthful indiscretions to your current ones, in your bedroom, with or without a man. But times change. You don't remember exactly when you started coming back to confession, but you do know why. Father Martin strikes an imposing form in black with a white Roman collar. His broad shoulders fill out his clerical wear and complement his farmer tanned skin. A shadow of facial hair fills in along his cheeks and chin, framing his mouth, which is somehow kind and authoritative at the same time. His eyebrows and hair are a soft black, and perhaps a bit unkept, which is not surprising given a priest's lack of vanity. And when he looks at you with his deep, dark brown eyes, you can't help but feel undone like he's looking past you. You would describe his gaze as intense, but there's more to it. The way he walks with deliberateness, the certainty with which he carries himself. Even the casual banter you overhear between him and parishioners. If Father Martin were any other man, you would have acted on your instinct by now. Brushing his hand, you'd have given him your phone number. But you can't do that. He is forbidden. And maybe that's what drives you toward him. Lying in bed, after the first time you rubbed your clit as you fantasized about him inside you, you felt a combination of incredible release and intense shame. I shouldn't be doing this, you thought. But the feeling was so powerful that it was hard to let go, and you wanted to feel it again. 
And so you reached for your vibe. And the more you thought about him, the more you realized the idea of him wasn't going to be enough. Complicated relationships lead to complicated feelings. The only way to guarantee being in his presence alone was in confession. A small, quiet, closeted room. You couldn't have him physically, but perhaps you could find a way to inspire your own arousal. Besides, in your experience, there's nothing hotter than making a man uncomfortable. Especially when he can't do anything about it. So, a sexual tease it was. At your first confession, getting on your knees in front of him was hard to do. You came to be forgiven, not to look eager. Telling him of a recent affair while thinking of him in your bed was intoxicating. You certainly enjoyed it, but Father Martin seemed... bored? With a blessing and a demand for penance, he waved you on. Your next confession was just as perfunctory, and the third came with a tired warning that perhaps you should become more serious about finding someone. Father Martin was unmoved. This made you angry and challenged. Fingering yourself to another orgasm with him on your mind, you resolved to make it more difficult for him to dismiss you. You wanted him to think of you the way you thought of him, uncontrolled, aching, wanting to get fucked senseless, not stoic, silently judging. What made it all the more difficult was that you simply couldn't walk in there and lie. As ridiculous as it sounded, you needed to confess, and lying about it was committing a sin, to a priest no less. You couldn't go through with it. This whole fantasy struck you on more than one occasion as insane. But you were determined to experience every sexually deviant act and seducing a priest topped your list. A man here, two there, a woman, swallowing a stranger's cock here taking your boss's cock in your ass, you needed to fuck, to come, to sin, and you needed to confess to attract your father Martin. Complicated relationships lead to complicated feelings. So the lips got a bit moister with gloss. Your bra got a size too small, showing more than a hint of bosom. The skirts of your dresses got a little higher and each confession got wilder. And like with every other man, you began to wear him down. A man trying to hide his attraction still gives up subtle hints. A deep breath as you describe the taste of semen hitting your tongue. Shifting of the legs over another when you disclose having one man fuck you deep from behind while face deep in your ex-boyfriend's ex-girlfriend. Fingers fidgeting on the chair as you reveal that despite your efforts, you couldn't resist the temptation of getting sodomized while having your hair pulled, especially when someone was watching. And the bulge you're certain you saw grow against his thin, black pants. You almost begin to feel sorry for Father Martin as you confessed about the hot splash of cum on your stomach last Thursday night. The more details you provide of your latest cock and how it felt inside you, the quieter the room gets, and the more imposing his silence and his penance offered. Watching his discomfort, you're dripping before you get off your knees, and by the time you get to your car, you have to rub yourself to orgasm before you can drive off. Soft sweater, 
pink wet lip gloss, a blouse with one button accidentally left undone, and a skirt completely inappropriate for doing anything but getting on your knees. On a whim, you decide not to wear panties, and the thought of that alone, having your slit uncovered nearby a man you can't have, makes you wet before you even enter the confessional room. Locking the door in usual fashion, you walk in front of him, dipping your hips side to side, ready to perch on your knees, when you suddenly hear him with great force say, Stop! The single word jerks you out of your joyful routine, shocked by the power of his voice. Father Martin is clearly angry, a storm in black judging you from a few feet away. As he narrows his eyes on you, you start to tremble. Whatever you've done, you've stirred something dark in him. He leaps to his feet and stands in front of you, inches away. You can't meet his eyes, because every time you do, you see the accusation in them. Slowly, he steps around you, and for the first time in this confessional, you feel truly powerless. Your tease is over. Walking in here to regale Father Martin with your latest sexual escapades is never going to happen again. And the ache you felt is no longer anywhere near your still-soaked pussy, but has moved to your chest, to your heart. Whatever lust you had is overcome by guilt. He's slowly circling you as the lions did the Christians in the Colosseum, ready to pounce and devour. Minutes pass before he speaks. His voice is a low growl in your ear from behind. His hot breath whispers authoritatively, I will hear your confession now. In his words, you hear his lust, his torment. You suddenly and sincerely regret what you've been doing and desperately hope for his forgiveness. You're about to begin your mea culpa to Father Martin, but before you can say anything, he instructs, face the wall and put your hands against it. You swallow, looking away, unable to meet his eyes before you half-heartedly comply. Eyes downward, you stare at the wall and you obey your priest. As you place your hands against the wall, that great force returns. Higher. In fear, you raise your hands a little more. Angrily, Father Martin kicks your feet apart and forcefully lifts your arms above your head, pinning them against the wall. Did you hear me? He whispers once more, rasping. I said higher. And there you are, standing prostrate and vulnerable in front of an angry man of God, helpless, hoping beyond hope that your skirt covers your bare, goose-pimpled ass. Your entire body starts to quake against the wall as you try to still yourself. Tell me why you are here, Father Martin's angry growl inquires. You pause, breathing in. I wanted to confess. Father Martin comes behind you, his arm sliding in front of your belly. His hot breath is on your neck, and my God, his hardened cock presses against your ass. He whispers, Confession requires true remorse for what you have done. True remorse is required for forgiveness. Are you truly remorseful for the sins you committed? Without hesitation, you lie for the first time in confession. Yes, I'm truly remorseful. He lifts your skirt, and you gasp in shame, start to turn around. 
Father Martin grabs you by the arms and prevents you from turning, pushing you hard against the wall again. Pins your hands above your head once more. I didn't say you could move. The growl returns. You have the nerve to walk in here, demand forgiveness from me, and yet you don't have the decency to cover yourself? Shame echoes with his words, and your eyes search upward for salvation, but none comes. His grip tightens around your wrists, his firm, olive-skinned hand holding you. Your body shakes with embarrassment, and you tear up from the hot guilt, not sure how to extricate yourself from a justifiably angry priest. And then you feel it. Jerked back into reality, your eyes fix on the wall and you try to catch your breath. It's unmistakable. His cock is positioned between your ass cheeks. Comfortably, unbearably warm. Hardened without weakness. And then, you realize the uncomfortable truths of this room. You are never in control here. The cock you've been teasing, it's hungry for you. But it is forbidden. You can't have it. Yet, you crave it. More than any other dick you've ever had or wanted or imagined. You want this man, this man of the cloth. You're ashamed, wanting what you can't have. You'll do anything for it, to feel it inside you all the way in. For the first time in quite some time, you feel humble. Closer. Meaner. Father Martin growls. I will hear your confession now. Tell me why you are here. There's only one truth here to acknowledge, one confession to be said. You lift your eyes upward once more and whisper, I want you to fuck me. I'm sorry, why are you here? Father Martin demands once more. Say it. And you confess, louder. I want you to fuck me. The hardened dick pulls away from your ass cheeks and slides toward your cunt lips. You cry out softly as his cock pushes inside you. You squirm, eyes wide open as you feel his balls press against you. His hands grip your shoulders. Again, why are you here? Father Martin commands. This time, more forcefully, you have no choice but to confess as you feel him slide in and out of you, your hands still raised against the wall bracing for the hardest fuck you've ever received. I want you to fuck me, Father Martin. Whether it was the constant teasing over the last several months or the pressure of celibacy as a man in the prime of his life, Father Martin pounds into you in a way no man ever has before. With every thrust, powerful and fast, your body shakes. He holds your hips, thrashing into your pussy again and again while you scrape your fingernails against the walls. It doesn't take you long to come. As your breasts are forced loose from your bra, you stifle your cries and bite your lower lip, your cheek pressed hard against the wall as you come. Your priest fills you deeper and deeper, again and again, and when it's time, he pulls out turns you around, pushes you down onto your knees. You take him into your mouth, swallow everything that pours out of him. You look upward and briefly catch his stern eyes watching his dick as it disappears into your mouth again and again as he finishes. Father Martin dresses and returns to his chair. 
He watches you as you straighten your clothes and smooth out your hair, then he waves his hand for you to kneel in front of him. Father Martin formally asks, Are you truly remorseful for what you have done? You slowly nod, truthfully, meeting his eyes for the first time since you swallowed his cum. Good. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he says, blessing you. Go forth from this place and sin no more. And with that, you are dismissed. You stand and turn toward the door. From behind, you hear, I expect to see you in confession weekly. You can tell this isn't an expectation, it's an order. Closing the door behind you and making your way out of the church, you lick the taste of Father Martin from your lips, realizing there's a whole lot more you can't wait to confess. hope you enjoyed the show. That was Confession by Emma Chatton, narrated by the amazing Jade A. Waters. You guys should follow us on the show, at the KMQ on Twitter. We give away audiobooks if you tweet us. Tag us in a tweet and tell us your favorite episode. We've got an entire library for you guys to choose from, so get on that. Um, don't forget, we've got our call for submissions out if you want to write something. Uh, all the details will be included in our show notes at the link. It is an anthology that we are building titled Erotica for Men and the Women Who Love Them, Volume 2. If you want more sexy stories and you want to support the show, please go to Amazon, iTunes, or Audible and search Rose Caraway. Don't forget to leave us a sexy review so that more lured listeners just like you can follow us. The KMQ would like to thank these wonderful musical artists, Nylor, Kai Engel, and the feature credit song, Josie Has the Upper Hand, by Josh Woodward. And the KMQ introduction music by Vivage. It's so easy when you think you're winning, but she's got herself another plan. You may think you're being clever like some kind of modern man, but Josie has the upper hand. You may think you're being clever like a modern man, but Josie has the upper hand. Stupid.
stupid fish. The Mermaid's Necklace Author, Maxim Jakubowski Narrator, Rose Carraway Category, Folklore Subjects 1. Shiny Scales 2. Tribute Paid 3. Master of the Fuck The Mermaid's Necklace Maxim Jakubowski This is the sorry tale of how I lost the woman I loved to a merman and, later, lost my penis to the sea. April and I were already on the second chapter of our lives, silently dreading the inevitable twilight and eager to enjoy the time we had left together, all too aware of the sundry mistakes we had both made repeatedly and varyingly in previous years. We were all too aware that time had already passed us by too rapidly and seemed now to accelerate perilously. Too many pages in the books of our lives had prematurely been turned, and we knew all too acutely that not many of our remaining moments could be wasted. Her name was actually April Dawn, and we had met in the month of April, in a bar, in a club, in a hotel that catered to the lonely, or the damaged. Drifters coming together, beggars who could no longer afford to be choosers. I was a widower, and she was a nude model who had turned 40, whose assets were no longer in sufficient demand. Initially, we lived in a big city in the north, drunk on the lights and the noise, the culture, the food, and the infinite choices, even though in the heart of night, it was just the two of us, spooning in bed against each other, relishing the warmth, the closeness, and, in my case, the delirious softness of her body, her curves, her touch, and the caress of her voice in the dark, when we invariably played the games of the flesh. Even though I increasingly had to rely on the magic of the small blue pills to awaken the reality of my ardor, in my mind, however, I was always hard for her. During the daytime, we worked, hard, but always arranged to speak on the phone a few times, never allowing the ties that bind to weaken, until we would meet up again in the evening and could swim anew in the tide of our contentment. All too easily, the months swept by, days and hours, ticking away uncounted. We were happy in our quiet, unspectacular way, content with the banality of love and the sound of our own voices. We had few friends, and even then we preferred our own company, so even those we made or had accumulated over our earlier lives began to drift away. One morning in December, two weeks before Christmas, there was a thin layer of snow on the ground, and the car on the drive was peppered with frost. It was the beginning of a weekend. Looks cold, feels cold, April said. Yes, I agreed. Maybe we should take a break somewhere, a holiday, go somewhere warm. Why not? We went online, surfed, read, pondered. Places with exotic names, resorts with fancy descriptions, promising the earth on an all-inclusive budget. Some we had been to separately before we had come together. Others neither of us knew about or were attracted to for good reasons. I'd gone to the kitchen to get myself some lemonade and a cup of strong brew for her, leaving April exploring possibilities at the desktop screen. I set down her coffee on a corner of the desk. What about a cruise? April asked, looking up at me. I had never even contemplated the idea. When I had been a teenager, we had lived in Paris, and every half-term my parents would pack me off to London to spend time with my aunt. 
I had always hated the ferry crossing the channel and I was invariably seasick, in some cases rather violently and unforgettably, disgustingly so. I expressed my reservations. I just thought it sounded glamorous, she said. We examined the various itineraries on offer and gradually succumbed to the idea. After all, there were a lot of stops on dry land along the way, in places that had once sounded like expensive mirages and were now within our financial reach. I could stock up on seasickness pills. It wouldn't be the end of the world, even though that felt like our actual destination. The ports were pleasant, the boat surprisingly steady like a city on water, and not a hint of nausea plagued me, even as we swept across a choppy bay of Biscay. My stock of pills would remain untouched for the whole 33 days of the journey. We enjoyed the winter sun on the top observation deck, sitting in our deck chairs, reading from the ship's library, and sipping cold drinks, which would have cost us less than half the price on land. As ever, we avoided the company of others. In that respect, we were not typical cruisers, a species I observed from close range with both disdain and a touch of horror. And there was nothing like coordinating my gentle thrusts when we made love to the rhythm of the boat effortlessly cutting across the waves. The minimal sway and movement of its massive bulk, surging as if through butter, dividing resistance and almost attaining the majesty of flight. Not that I'd ever achieved a mile-high achievement. No woman had ever told me I might have been a superlative lover, but I was content to be average. At one stage, we had seven days in a row between ports of call, moving invisibly along the wide, limitless sea. At twilight on the forward deck, waiting for the call for dinner in the main restaurant, we gazed at the sea, unfurling with no end in sight and blending with the horizon as the sun set. Isn't it just amazing, isn't it? She said. Yes, so much water. And then you remember what a large proportion of the planet is just that, water. More than land. The mind boggles, and all that secret life underneath, too. Makes you think, she said. Yes, how insignificant we are in the scheme of things. I nodded. There was both majesty and a quiet form of serenity to the moment. I turned to April, looking into her gray eyes, with their curious, evanescent speckles of green, like miniature jewels sparkling in their depths at irregular intervals, depending on her moods. Miles from civilization, from even the smallest of islands, heading for Polynesia, isolated, with plains of water in all directions, she was pensive, more so than I had ever seen her before. Makes you think, eh? Yes, I agreed again. After our return from the lengthy cruise, we felt adrift for some time. And then, one day, she suggested we move from the big city and go live on a coast, Nearer to the sea, she now felt such a strong affinity for. Already, it was calling out to her. We argued, calculated, dithered, and finally took the jump. It was a famous beach, a mile long, renowned for its surfers and spectacular waves, and we found a small apartment in the low hills behind it. April was adamant it should feature a balcony from which she could watch the sea in all its splendor over the roofs of the buildings, hotels, eateries, gift shops, and clubs on the promenade below. It was there we began drifting apart. I could work anywhere, have laptop can travel, but April was now idle and left to her thoughts. 
While I typed away, she would spend hours on the balcony, gazing out at the changing colors of the ocean, or would walk to the beach, sit herself down for hours, eyes fixed on the horizon, deep in contemplation. When I asked what was going through her mind on these lengthy occasions, she could never express herself to any degree of satisfaction, mumbling, stumbling on words, and then falling silent again. Now I know that it was the sea calling out to her, wrapping its insidious roots deep down inside her mind. The tourist season faded away, as did the tourists and the surfers. The silence between us grew deeper with every passing day. I was on a deadline. April spent increasing hours away from our apartment. Often, when I stepped over to the balcony for a breath of fresh air, I might see her in the distance toward the end of the beach, where the rocks rose, sitting motionless like a matchstick woman on the plain of sand with her back to me, seemingly entranced by the swell of the nearby waves and the ebb and flow of the water by her feet. One day, as I watched her in the distance, I saw the elongated silhouette of a man emerge from the sea, ambling towards her. I became frozen to the spot. The man reached her, standing tall beside her, and the image froze as they remained fixed like statues. Squinting hard as I was, I was unable to make out his features, let alone what he was wearing. His image shrouded in eerie darkness, just a somber silhouette. His shadow fell on her lanky form, the warm brown shades of her skin offset by the white of her skimpy bikini. They were immobile for an eternity, in conversation probably. A call of nature stole me from the balcony. By the time I rushed back, the man was no longer at her side, and I saw April slowly walking down the beach on her way home. He was nowhere to be seen, returned to the sea where he had come from. How was it? It was good. The sea is always so beautiful. No mention of the man she had fallen into conversation with, probably because it meant nothing, just an idle encounter not worth mentioning. For the next four days, April returned to the same spot on the beach and, invariably, the man emerged from the sea at some point and joined her. He never sat. April never rose. What could they be talking about? Saw you chatting with someone. Anything interesting? No. She looked me in the eyes, almost defiant in her response. Just someone, nothing of importance. I bought a pair of binoculars at one of the gift shops on the promenade where they also sold giant embroidered towels, swimwear, and surfing accessories. I stood on the corner of the balcony, ashamed, furtively watching her in the distance. Lines of white on a sullen sea echoed the streaks of her bikini against her tanned skin. A dark blur upon the breaking wall of waves and the man appeared as if from the very depths of the sea. I adjusted the focus. My heart seized. He was naked. My attention was inevitably drawn to his cock, thick, long, straight, dangling proudly between his massive thighs as he cut through the flow of the water lapping its way toward the edge of the beach. I swallowed hard next. The rest of his body was covered in shiny, dark scales. His ebony hair fell to his scaled shoulders, wet and dripping with salt. He looked like a magnificent beast roused from the deep, both human and inhuman. He reached April. She stood. I watched their lips through the lens of the binoculars, my breath tight and irregular, the cold metal cutting into my cheek. 
Neither of them spoke. Do mermen even have a language or the capacity of speech? April unhooked her top, which fell to the ground while the stranger tugged at her bottom and pulled it down to the sand. I wanted to close my eyes, but I just couldn't. I watched them make love. I tried to feel detached, but couldn't pull my eyes away. He was brutal, unrelenting, a master of the fuck. For a brief moment, I remembered the beach scene in From Here to Eternity with Burt Lancaster and Deborah Kerr. It was an incongruous thought, and what I was witnessing was in another dimension of sex altogether. Primal. Elemental. Savage. How long their sandy union lasted, I have no clue about. But I had to eventually stop watching, as every successive thrust was a further stab to my heart and gut. Somewhere inside me, I'd always known April and I wouldn't last forever, but would have never predicted it would happen this way. Like a film you can't unremember. Abominable images had been carved deep into the back screen of my brain. The porcelain white of her skin scraping relentlessly against the off-green texture of his scales. The massive girth of his erection. His cock a rainbow mix of azure colors. Its glistening darker tip digging into her slit, parting her labia with ferocity until it was swallowed whole. I wanted to close my eyes but could not find the willpower to do so entranced by the spectacle of their mating, imagining the noises of the sea, the lapping of the waves surrounding their rutting bodies, witnessing the O of her mouth as he plowed into her, the V of her hard nipples as he played her body like an instrument. I came, watching them. That night, she did not return, nor the following day. I had already reached a resigned sense of acceptance. Then on the morning of the third day, since I had witnessed her in the arms of the merman, the key turned in the front door and she walked in. She wore a thin sundress, almost transparent against the rising light cavalcading through the window and the white cotton curtains. She was visibly nude underneath. I looked at her. She was flushed. There was a length of thick gauze plastered along the right side of her neck. What is that? I asked. Nothing, she said. It's not, I replied. Show me. She did. There was a raw, deep scarlet scar running along the ridge of her long neck. Between it, a new mouth, a dark maw that gaped open. What the fuck? It's not what it seems, April stated. Did he do it? I asked. No, he sent me to a doctor in the hills who was willing to perform the surgery. I fell silent. April then walked past me and made a beeline for the bedroom. You're leaving, aren't you? Yes. Why come back at all? I wanted my jewelry. That's all. You can give all my other stuff to charity. Any charity. It doesn't matter. We didn't discuss what I had observed on the beach, as if she knew I had seen it all. Later, once again on the balcony, holding the heavy military binoculars, following from afar her deliberate path along the promenade, then down the stone steps to the beach and her steady progress toward the rocks, where the beach turned into the sea. He emerged from the water. April shed her sundress and, wonderfully naked and free, took a step toward him. He opened his arms, took her by one hand, and pulled her toward the harbor of the sea. Soon the water was up to their knees, their waists, their necks, until they were fully submerged. 
I caught a brief glimpse of their legs scissoring the waves, fluttering as they both swam under to reach his world, where she could now live, now that her body had been surgically adjusted and she could survive under the sea, the gills in her neck like a beautiful new cunt. I began to cry. I had no wish to return to the big city in the north, even though the beach resort now held painful memories. I met my deadlines, lived from day to day with a profound pain in my heart and sharp pangs of memory piercing the night sky, as I tried unsuccessfully to reach the peace of sleep and dreams. I now made a daily pilgrimage to the area close to the rocks where April had first met the merman and left with him. I hoped she was happy, but I missed her so much. Damn it, I did and wondered what life must now be like for her, how things functioned under the sea or on the exotic faraway islands where she and her merman and others of his kind maybe lived, took refuge. Weeks passed, several months, maybe even more than a year, in a state of misery, half alive, submerged by sadness. I often got drunk at a shady tavern to the left of the rocks in the unfashionable part of town, where you could be morose with no one making any objection and ignore the slumming crowds and remain seated in splendid isolation. It was dawn, the sun just a speck rising in the east, the wind mild and caressing. I nursed a mild hangover, sitting cross-legged in the humid sand, watching the sea, eternal, steadfast, imperial. I blinked. A shadow darted across a dying wave that crashed against the nearby shore. Opened my eyes wide. The apparition gained focus. I blinked again, my throat tightening. It was a woman. She was naked. Her heavy, dark-nippled breasts swaying gently in the muddy water. She had brown hair, falling wet to her shoulders. A strand of seaweed snaked between the valley of her breasts. Her eyes were emerald, not April. She stopped looked across at me with a hint of a smile. I waved at her, hoping I wasn't scaring her. An early morning swimmer who hadn't expected to find anyone around at such a premature time of day? She looked foreign, different. She began to move forward in my direction, gliding with uncommon elegance through the incoming tide until the sea swayed sideways as her midriff appeared. She had no legs, a scaled mass of flesh, a mermaid. She wriggled onto the shore and settled by my side. She could speak. I was entranced by her beauty. Her name was Liv Lisa. It was love at first sight, at least for me. For several weeks in a row, we would meet at the same spot on the deserted winter beach and talk endlessly. I would tell her about my life, the cities I had seen, the places I had been, the things I had done. She would, her voice imbued with all the dizzying softness of a musical instrument played by a virtuoso, talk to me of the islands, her folk, her legends, allowing my hands to stray across her body, the silk of her skin, the damp firmness of her regal breasts, the hypnotic texture of the scales covering the lower half of her body, her tail. I never even bothered to ask her about April or Merman, that was the past, and this was the present, and Live Lisa was at its center. Never had a woman, let alone a mermaid, taken my cock inside her mouth with such talent and devotion, the wetness of her tongue and its salty surroundings like a balm. 
the movements of her deft tongue like a snake of lust enveloping me in her grasp, her dance, her hunger. Never had my anus been fingered like a piano, the movements of her supple fingers in harmony with the travails of her busy mouth, orchestrating the rise of my engorged fluids through my balls and helpless cock, like an experienced conductor who'd entranced every concert-goer in the world. But most of all, it was the picture of her face when she looked at me, sucked me, and played with me that became unforgettable, a thing of beauty, both naive and wanton, childish and as old as the world at the same time, her deep blue eyes reflecting every shade of the sea and the eternal tides of lust, the sheer perfection of her breasts, the magic touch of her hands, her wandering fingers, the curve of her ass where it merged imperceptibly with scales and her tail, the phosphorescence of her body, its light bathing us in a force field of time as we merged, made love, fucked, fought, and enjoyed each other as much as we could. Every day, when the sun had risen properly over the far horizon, she would retreat to the sea, always promising to return the following day, which she invariably did. The seasons are turning. The weather will soon change a lot, and it will be too hot for me to swim these waters. Liv Lisa said one day. I knew what this meant, that I wouldn't see her again, or at any rate, for around a whole year. A prospect I couldn't face. I can travel to the islands, I pointed out. I'd be happy to, not to lose you. It's too much to ask, Liv Lisa said. Nothing would be too much, I replied. But you can't live under the sea. You're human, she stated. I'm aware there is a doctor who can operate on me, change me appropriately, I declared. I know, Liv Lisa sighed. But for any man to join us, he must also pay a tribute. It's our law. I nodded. We agreed we would meet on the night of the spring solstice by the Bay of Sharks in Nukuhiva. I knew there was a regular boat service to the French Polynesian island. That night, at the tavern, I began asking around. Toward the end of a long evening, passed from post to post, person to person, I finally came across a local sailor who knew a man who knew another man who knew of a rather particular doctor. I tracked him down, explained. I wouldn't if I were you, he said. Mermaids are extremely unreliable. That's a well-known fact. They lure you to unholy places until there is no turning back. I was firm, told him I was ready for the consequences. I had the operation that would allow me to breathe underwater. The cut along my neck would match April's. This he did with just a local anesthetic. Then he put me under for the other surgical intervention. When I woke up, he had expunged my genitals. It felt sore, but I knew physical pain always passes. I looked down at my body. It shone clean, hygienic, almost natural in its absence. Not that I'd had that much use for my cock for some time, I consoled myself. The doctor's payment, as we had agreed, was in kind. For the fruit of his labors, he would retain my penis. For his specimen collection, he pretended. Little did I know then that he would pass the small flask in which it floated, shriveled, small, pitiful, to live Lisa. That they had a deal, and it wasn't the first time she had cleverly pointed a man his way. At least he had been right in speaking from experience when he had informed me that mermaids were not to be trusted. 
I arrived at Nukuhiva a few weeks later and made my way quickly to the Bay of Sharks. There was no sign of mermaids or Liv Lisa. I returned every single day for several weeks, but she never appeared. I returned to the long beach, an emptiness in my soul and inside my trousers. By now, the area had fully healed, and the inconvenience of my penis's absence was no more than the wind of a fleeting memory. A year went by, and I returned every day before dawn to the beach, but no one came to join me, ever. Apart from stray dogs detached from their leashes, their owners, and material debris washing up from the sea. One night at the tavern, I met Volker, an elderly German ship's mate, hailing from Hamburg. We became friendly and had been drinking together in a smoky corner of the joint when, out of nowhere, the subject of fantastic sea creatures came up. I believe in them, he said with a deep sigh. So do I, I nodded. He looked me in the eyes as if weighing me. Tentatively encouraged by our respective reaction to the way the conversation was going, we both hinted at personal experience with such creatures. And I learned about the legend of Liv Lisa, the beautiful, seductive mermaid who stole men's cocks and, reputedly, had them hanging from her necklace. It was said she now had two handfuls of penises strung along her coral necklace. No other mermaid in the hemisphere had harvested as many, a testimony to her incomparable beauty and powers of seduction. I visited an occult library in the upper town where I was told rare books about legends and the sea were kept. I had to bribe the librarian to be given access to the rare book section where forbidden texts and images were kept. There, I found in the second edition of the Zephon Classic a collection of sea lore, engravings depicting Liv Lisa and her kind and the necklaces they harvested in their dangerous journeys. There was an image of a cock necklace, and the image captivated me. They came in all sizes, some small, others large, some veiny, some smooth, all conserved by some dubious miracle of science at the pinnacle of their erect size, it appeared. Both a morbid and fascinating sight. And I knew all too well that now one of them was mine, not so much a stellar but probably an undistinguished addition to Liv Lisa's collection. And was Volker's there too? He'd been evasive when I probed him. But there had certainly been a cloud of sorrow floating behind his eyes as we concluded our conversation. He never returned to the tavern the following days. I traveled. I lounged on the beaches of Spain, Thailand, Bali, some of the Maldives Islands, crossed the Panama and the Kiel Canal, navigated the Florida Keys, lingered on Bora Bora, and tramped down the Yucatan Peninsula. Never found out where mermaids and mermen lurked. But I will keep on searching as I follow the trail of my lost April, the treacherous Liv Lisa and my severed penis. And if you buy me another glass of that exquisite bourbon, I might even tell you what happened to me in the dunes of that Caribbean island I am not allowed to mention by name, or about the delirious way a mermaid's breasts feel under your wandering fingertips. Just another sea story. The Sexy Librarian's Dirty 30, Volume 3 Edited by Rose Carraway Narrated by Jade A. Waters Big Daddy Dave Carraway and Rose Carraway.